When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. This week, I think I've got something really special lined up for you. I have a small homesteader from upstate New York that's here to, uh, well, I'm not real sure where we're going to go with this conversation. She wrote a wonderful paper that she sent to me, and I ended up making three pages of notes, and I hope we're going to have a wonderful conversation so from upstate New York, please welcome my not cousin or otherwise related, Victoria Alexander. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. I, I want to thank my nephew, Preston, who's in Texas. He's got a farm, 30 acres in Roxton, and he's putting the fence up, got the pond in. He's going to do Beefmaster cattle. Awesome. He, told, he told me about the show. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the message you sent in, and um we were kind of talking, we've been talking for a few minutes before I press the recording button. Y'all yeah, be honest. And um, you were introduced by, you know, that that's kind of what you said in your email. And then you sent this paper that I read and like, I'm, I'm, I'm really itching to get into it, but let's put a pin in that. And let's talk about you for a little while. Let's talk about like, tell me, tell me some of your story about where you're at and, uh, and how you got there. Well, it's kind of odd that I ended up um, being a farmer, um, but uh, I guess after 9-11, I, I was a little bit nervous about um, security and safety living in Manhattan. So I uh, took the train two hours north and found this little old um, farmhouse built in 1750 and uh, taught myself how to farm, you know, on uh, YouTube videos, <laughs> bought some sheep, um, and we're at the point now, I'm, I, I do canning about 200 quarts every year. We're at the point now where if the food supply completely collapsed, um, we wouldn't starve. I'd be in better shape. I'd probably lose 10 pounds. That would be great. <laughs> we wouldn't have any junk food. That, looking forward, looking forward to the complete, complete collapse. <laughs> Um, but when I was in Manhattan, I, I'm, I'm an academic. I'm a philosopher of biology and complex systems. Um, I, I don't think, I don't know if the philosophy really, of uh, being a philosopher of biology really helps with uh, raising animals. <laughs> helps me think about it in the larger picture of things. <laughs> I, I, I would argue that, you know, being able to think about things in the larger picture is kind of critical for anybody in agriculture. Yeah, yeah sh sure. You know, um, understanding an ecosystem is complex system science, and that's the area that I worked in. So, so yeah, I think it helps a lot if you if you understand that uh, permaculture is really you know complex systems. Understanding how complex systems work. For sure. So, tell me about your permaculture garden. Um, well, 
you know, permaculture is a is a trademark name. Did you know that? Some I guy. Yeah. <laughs> Do I owe somebody seventy five cents for saying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I uh, you know, I don't know if I'm doing permaculture the the way that I should be, but I don't want to have to work too hard. <laughs> And I don't want to put herbicides and pesticides. And so I've just learned over the years that if I put a ton of cottonwood leaves in my potato garden and stick the potatoes under there, I get a huge crop without doing any gardening or turning over the soil or anything. And, um, you know, I, I didn't learn that. I, you know, I just had, had needed somewhere to put all my, my leaves when I raked them up. And I found that that works for the, the cabbage really well too, and then put little mounds on them. And, and it's terrible for eggplant, don't try that. You know, and it's just trial and error over the years. I can't grow broccoli no matter how hard I try. Broccoli's um, hard. Yeah, I think you have to be in a different climate. Um, maybe California is better for broccoli. We've had some, we've had a little bit out of our garden, like big, big, huge plant, little itty bitty, like broccoli florets. Yeah. Little tiny things. Yeah. A lot of plant, not a lot of flower. I do really great okra. I'm known around here for doing a lot of okra, which is unusual for this area, Um, but I'm a Texan. So of course I have okra that's doing great. And my asparagus is just nuts. Um, And so I have a little farm stand at the end of my driveway you know I'm not a I'm not a in the business I'm just growing food for my family um, and then we have sheep it goes from six to 12 or 16 or so depending on how many lambs we had and how many we didn't sell um, I got a cut on my face today because I got I was wrangling a ewe two days ago and she kicked me in the face <laughs> oh, that's okay I did one of these the other day um, and you know, for those of you that are, that do support on Patreon, you get to watch the, the video version on YouTube. Um, I had a big old piece of cow crap on my face. <laughs> it's like, I'm sitting here looking at myself going, what is that spot? And yeah, didn't even really, didn't clean it up till afterwards. So that happened, but hurts of the job, dangers, uh, dangers of the job, I guess, something like that. Yeah. So we have, we have Navajo churro sheep and, um, they are really hardy and um, don't eat that much, you know, so we have five acres and that can, you know, that's enough for six to 10 sheep, say. T- and, tell me uh, about that. Tell me about those sheep. I'm kind of curious as to why I've never heard of that breed. Really? It, no, I never have. Well, they were on the endangered list for a while, but it was the, the Navajo Indians um, got them from the Spanish. The Spanish bought, brought churro sheep over and the, Navajo um, bred them. They're kind of a long, a little bit of a long haired sheep and that's what they make the Navajo rugs out of. Okay. Um, it's a good tough textile. Um, so, and they're good meat sheep, even when they're older. So it's nice, they're both. Not much of a milk sheep at all, but um, they're very, very hardy. They never get sick. And um, I've never had any problems with them giving birth either until this year, one finally died in, in given birth and that was horrible um but but for you know 12 12 years or so um never had any problem interesting never had, never had to assist or anything so they're good sheep so sheep that that have been sheep genetics that have been an adapt that have been on this continent for a long time and been adapted to live 
Yeah, in dry areas too, in dry hot areas, they do well and they do fine here too. So, yeah. Well, I, we haven't said it. So where is here? You said two hours north of, of Manhattan. Two hours north of Manhattan. And it's just a little tiny town called Amenia, which means pleasing to the eye in Latin. Okay. I wrote, I wrote a novel called Locus Aminus, which is pleasant locale. I'm a novelist too, in addition to being a philosopher. And uh, it's, a, it's a satire, it's a dark, dark comedy about 9-11. It's um, Hamlet is a 9-11 conspiracy theorist rewritten for modern times. So okay, I have- a, That'll be interesting. I'll have to make sure yeah. I have the correct spelling of that to put that in the show notes. I might, I might even have to get that on Audible. So, is it on Audible? Well, uh, uh, it was just taken down. I got to put it, put it up again. Um, long story about that. It's the, 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 the actor who did the audio book died during COVID. And so the rights shuffled around and it'll be up again soon. It's okay. up on my website for free right now. But, um, but locus aminus is, uh, that it means pleasant location. It's sort of like Eden. It's that that pastoral paradise where nothing bad will ever happen until it does. And so I, I, it's a long tradition in literature that in going, going back to the Greeks, talking about the shepherds, you know, uh, singing about their, their loves and things like that. And, and so I, 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 set the, I set the book in Amenia, since it's Locus Amenia, Locus Aminus, it's the uh, same. And so it's a comedy about a city person trying to learn how to be a shepherd and <laughs> interacting with the locals and learning how to get along. There's probably I'm... no real life flavor thrown in there at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So how does a Texas girl end up as a philosopher in New York city? Mm-hmm. Uh, I met a German boy in Dallas and went off to Berlin when I was a teenager and then flew back to New York and didn't have enough money to go any further and got a job there. And that's the story. Really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's it. That's how I ended up in New York. And I liked New York. I liked New York a lot. Um, now I love Texas too. I look back at Texas and I, and I see um, the independent people in Texas. And I'm so proud of what people are doing in Texas, um, you know, not putting up with a lot of the government craziness. <laughs> we'll probably circle back into some of that later. <laughs> from, from New York, from New York, it looks like you guys are doing better. From here, we look at the coasts and kind of wonder what y'all are doing. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's sometimes it's not real clear what, uh, why the coastal elites want to do what they want to do or the policies that y'all want to want to think will be a good idea. Sometimes it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us out here in the, uh, you know, as a lot of folks would call it flyover country, but you know, that's fine. If you want to call it flyover country, just stay on the airplane and, you know, keep bouncing back and forth. If you want to look at some really pretty parts of the world, you got to get off the interstates every once in a while. Yeah. And don't forget that New York state is a huge state and it's mostly rural. You know, you got that tiny little Island down there, you know, that, you know, those suburban, but I'm two hours 
just two hours north of, of New York City, and there's nothing out here. I, we have one stoplight. Actually, we, I had a young lady that worked for me a couple of years ago, and she was from like the western part of, yeah. of upstate oh, yeah. New York. Yeah. And she said it's, you know, it's a lot like anywhere else in the Midwest. It's just a bunch of small farms, trees, you know, be cows, you know, you could pull up to a road intersection, it'll be one quarter of cows, a quarter of corn, a quarter of wheat, and a quarter of pasture. Yep. Pretty, pretty yeah. rural. I think from watching television, we we get a skewed sense of what most of America is like. I don't remember what the pop, but it's, I don't remember what the, exactly what the population is between urban and suburban and rural, but, um, you know, there's quite a lot of rural, <laughs> certainly a lot of land. And so, um, you know, and we, we can go back to, I think a lot of people need to return to the rural areas. Now that everybody's working at home on their computers, they might as well, right? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> Well, I think that that was what one of the things that uh, they were trying to say, like, I guess I guess one of the next things they'll push then is like, well, since all these people are unemployed, we'll just, you know, give everybody universal basic income and everybody will grow their own food. Right. It's just that easy, isn't it? Yeah, that's the that's the cheese in the trap that UBI. Like the mouse sure. is in the trap because it doesn't understand why the cheese is free. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So mostly you said you mostly just do like your farming and gardening for your family to feed your family and a little bit extra to feed the community. Yeah. I call it my karma far farm stand. Um, I, you know, have a little painted sign that says $5 for eggs or $4 for asparagus or whatever, but everybody knows that if they don't have the money, they don't have to put it in. So it's a honor system. Um, and sometimes there's $20 instead of five. So works out. <laughs> yeah. You don't have any problems with that? Uh-uh. No. And I, I know there's the, some people that take the asparagus all the time. They just take all the asparagus. I know that they don't eat well, they don't have healthy food and they like that asparagus. So, and so they don't pay for it and I, and that's fine. Um, I'm also giving my neighbors plants, you know, like asparagus root and strawberry plants, uh, nettle roots too, because nettle is a great food um, so that they can grow their own food. And when everything collapses, I won't have to feed them. They'll have something. <laughs> I'm trying to get everybody around me self-sufficient, you know, tell them how to plant potatoes. Those are so easy to grow around here. You sound like you're certain that there is a collapse coming. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. You know, I, I, people that have been listening to the podcast for, for the last several months will know that I've been, I've been warning, like things are going to get bad. Things are going to get bad. I don't think I've actually outright said collapse because I don't want people to start throwing conspiracy theorists at me, which mm -hmm. I guess these days is more just fortune teller or, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, uh, people at the top do conspire with each other to hold their power and to gain more power. I mean, that's the 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 term conspiracy theory theorist is a little silly. You know, of course, people in positions of power are corrupt. You know, of course they are. Um, 
Yeah, but the, yeah, the, you know, I mean, they, they, hey, hey, is this called the, the reboot um, instead of the reset? Is this the alternative? Uh, well, I mean, we call it ranching reboot because trying to reboot your thinking about food systems, not necessarily trying to, you know, reboot society. But I, I was just wondering if that was, uh, you know, a, a remark on that, say we're not going to, because, because we're not, you know, people say the greater reset or something like that. Yeah, the whole system needs to be reset or rebooted in a way. We need we need major changes. Um, it would be better if we could make them incrementally so that people don't starve or lose their homes. Um, but as a complex system researcher, I understand that um, when there is a system-wide collapse, that's the opportunity to uh, rebuild it in a better way. You really can't do those incremental changes, as we were saying before we, we started the show. Uh, um, it's just too hard. The system is too entrenched. But, but because the system is really reactive at this point, you know, I mean, the things that the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates and stuff, it's just you know, or the CARES Act with, you know, um, creating trillions of uh, fiat money and, and giving it to wealthy corporations, you know, that, that was just crazy. That was just completely insane. And every, you know, anybody that looked at, looked at that said, oh, okay, hyperinflation is coming. Of course it is. That's what happens when you make everybody stay home. But no if you said, said that when they're trying to pass that last $1.2 trillion stimulus yeah. package, if you said this is going to cause runaway hyperinflation, they said, you're just a crazy conspiracy theorist. This will be fine. We've got to pay people or the economy will collapse. Well, when you do that, when you, it, it's one thing if you threw a lot of money into the real economy, if you put money into our pockets and then we were a, able to go out and spend it and people were out there working to make more goods and services for us. But in addition to all that money, they had everybody staying home not making any goods or services. So that's when you have inflation, lots of money and nothing to buy. <laughs> you know, that's the recipe. That's, it always works like that, you know, so. And the danger we're facing right now, like if we turn back the clock to say, you know, the eighties before Reagan deregulation, corporate mergers, and we started moving a lot of manufacturing out of the country. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That that's what I'm. That's that's kind of like the framework of what I want to talk about is like we don't make shit here anymore. Yeah. And that's what the last two years have really showed. We don't make anything here anymore. We make food. I would. I would, I, I would argue about the definition of food <laughs> to some extent, um, but yeah. I mean, that's one thing we're still doing. We have all this farmland, so. We just need, you know, let's let's not, you know, Bill Gates is the second largest owner of farmland in the United States, um, and he's not going to farm it. You know, he's going to put it in conservation or whatever, rewild it. Um, I figured he would contract with soybean with people to grow GMO soybeans so he could make fake meat out of them. Uh, I I think they want to make the the actual, you know, the the lab grown meat. Um, cultured from humans or from, you know, beef cells or chicken cells to actually, 
They'll have to find something to replace bovine growth serum to do that with. Yeah. And like, doesn't each one of those, like a quarter, quarter pound cell culture patties take like gallons of that bovine growth serum? I, I would imagine. I would imagine. And, and they, they're, they're, uh, Elon Musk's brother is into those um, indoor LED, um, you know, growing lettuce and lettuce, cilantro, blueberries, and tomatoes. That's our menu. That's what we get. Um, and they're, they're really careful to make sure everything is uh, completely sanitary. The, the workers, before they go into the grow room where all the robots are moving the plants around, uh, they sterilize their boots before they walk in and they've got gloves on and masks. And I'm thinking, you know, my, my, my plants are grown right, right in the sheep poop out there. There's always a little turd or so. There's a bone or two. <laughs> I mean, the microbiome, you know, you don't know what kind of microorganisms are necessary to make a healthy plant. We have no idea, really. I mean, we're just now learning about beneficial bacteria, you know, in the last 20 years or so. And it seems like in the last two years, we've gone the reverse. Everybody's sanitizing their hands. They're killing 99.9% .9 of the good germs and they're leaving the bad germs on their hands so that they can, you know. Exactly, exactly. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, COVID changed a lot. And, you know, they kind of they kind of weaponized fear. I guess I used the C word, so we're going to get another COVID warning on this episode. Thanks, Spotify. Uh, but, yeah, COVID made everybody it weaponized fear, fear against bacteria, fear against biology. And it made you, like, it, it's made us question things like, is there really natural immunity? Is that a thing? Yeah, so one of the things that made us doubt our own natural immunity. And so go back to that paper, that was one of my, um, the main point that I wanted to make is that a lot of the industrialized farming methods have this assumption that nature isn't, is not intelligent on its own. And as a philosopher, one of the things I study is what is the nature of an intelligence? Um, you know, is slime mold intelligent? If slime mold behaves in a certain way. And, and, and so I look at really primitive organisms like that to try to understand what makes slime mold smarter than AI, for instance. That was one of the last papers that I wrote. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so there's just this assumption by some of the people in power that the world is mechanistic and that if you can just get enough data on it, um, if you study it enough, you can understand it enough to control it. And um, controlling from that top-down method with those hierarchies is dumb, it's stupid. You'll only, <laughs> you know, real intelligence is distributed and, you know, using, you know, the crowd to give you feedback and the reciprocity of the feedback of, you know, trying this and getting some feedback. That's how our brains work. You know, our, our neurons all work together to, you know, come up with an emergent idea. There's no real executive function telling our body, the rest of our body, what to do. And so there's these paradigms in the world, you know, this mechanistic top-down paradigm where you can control everything, you can control nature. And then this paradigm where nature is itself intelligent if you learn to work with it. 
And so you work with nature and, you know, nature can help you understand things better. In the paper, I say that I, um, I work with my plants and my animals because together we're smarter than I am alone, always. And there's just, um, there's, in that paper, there's things that are unanticipated that work out. For instance, I had a blind chicken. <laughs> Sydney. Sydney. Sydney who wandered around and of course she'd bump into things <laughs> and um, she'd bump into the, the, the fence where the grapes are growing and would knock some grapes down. And she's always randomly pecking, seeing what she could get and she would get grapes that way. And um, so one, one year we had a, a Japanese beetle infestation and they go for the grapes and she knocked up against that wire fence and the beetles came down and so she's eaten the beetles and the other chickens saw that and they imitated her by throwing their, their breasts up against the, the fence to knock down the beetles. So that was, you know, as a farmer, I let my animals um, take care of themselves, be a little bit self-sufficient. I don't, you know, lock them in a cage and feed them because when they're out wandering around, who knows what they could discover. Even a blind chicken could discover something that actually helped the entire flock out and got rid of all those bugs on my grapes. And so if you just let nature happen and um, you know, observe it, then you know, that was great. You know, that, that solved a lot of problems for me and created no new ones. <laughs> Every problem that you try to solve from the top-down method by controlling things, you just, you create five other problems. Yeah, kind of like a Hydra. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you got that reference. I won't have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> so this paper that we're talking about, I'm going to try to get through the title here. Oh, I'm sorry for that title. Isn't it an awful title? I apologize. Well, <laughs> I, it's your paper. Let me just tell you that it's called biosemiotics, which bio for life is okay. semiotics. And semiotics means the study of signs and the degree to which uh, animals and plants use signs to communicate with each other and to understand the world around them. Okay. So uh, the, the paper that we're talking about is titled Free Range Humans, Permaculture Farming as a Biosemiotic Model for Political Organization. And that's kind of an intimidating title, especially for a guy that works with cows every day. <laughs> and I, I sat down, I managed to get through it with my, whatever my reading level is these days. I managed to get through it. I'm not going to lie. I had to look up more than one word and figure out like bio uh, semiosic was definitely one of them. I had to look that up and I still, I'm still not sure I have my head wrapped around it. That's fine. That's fine. If I don't, if I don't have to look up two or three words every time I read something, then I'm probably not going to enjoy that. I learned something new that way. So expands my vocabulary, have, have greater semiotic freedom, as we say in my business, which uh, is like in knowing uh, two or three languages, then you can kind of pick up on more things in the world if you know more languages or you know your cow language. Um, you'll understand a lot more things. 
So Somebody else coming onto your farm, if they hear your cows, they probably won't be able to interpret what's going on quite the way that you do. I know I, I, I can tell every one of my sheep, I know what they sound like. And I can tell when somebody's in trouble just in a, in a minute or two, it sounds different. Um, and so if I had somebody, a caretaker come over to watch the sheep for a week, they might miss something. Um, so Nobody's ever going to be as in tune with the animals as the person that spends the most time with them. Mm -hmm. So and that's really important for farming and, and industrial farming really tries to ignore that as if it's not important. Is, do you think there's some something to emotional animal welfare? Uh, well, I guess so. I mean, I, I, I live in horror th thinking that maybe my sheep are uh, self-aware um, and they know when some of them are sent to slaughter, um, you know, kind of like how the slave owners used to think that their slaves weren't like real humans and they didn't value their offspring. And it was just fine if you sold them down the river. You know, people used to say that. But, you know, I say that about my sheep um, that I, I just sold six of them um, a couple of days ago. And, you know, the, the, they're going to live on another farm they're, you know, they're not, they didn't go to the slaughterhouse, but just seeing them in that back of the truck, you know, I, I worry about them. I know, and I, and I know they're calling for each other and the ones I have here are calling, you know, where's the rest of the flock? <laughs> I just, know. Just wonder where everybody else is. Yeah, I I have a I have a few more head than that, and I don't know all of them on a personal basis. But you know, the longer you have a group of cows when you're out there every day for a couple hours a day, interacting with them, you get to know some of your superstars, both mm -hmm. on the top end and the yeah. bottom end. <laughs> and uh, right now, I'm I'm commingled with a with another, let's just say, rancher friend. He, his cows are with mine and I can, I can tell a behavior change when his cow will get in with mine. Some of like, I'll have a group that'll still stick together and a bunch of his will stick with mine. Then about a quarter of his will kind of be scattered through the pasture. And then about a third of mine will kind of be off by themselves. It's, it's always interesting to watch how the different groups interact with each other. Yeah. But I can tell. You know, I, you can tell a lot just by going out and looking at them, you know, how they're holding their heads, how they're looking, like where they're looking and how they're holding their ears. There's a lot that just being in tune with your animals can teach you. And, you know, like take, for example, a pen rider in, in a big mega West Texas feedlot. If he's got to look at, you know, seven or 8,000 head of cattle every day. How well does he know those animals, especially if they're turning over every 90 to 120 days or the hog farmer in the confinement barn? He doesn't know those animals. The chicken farmer, there's no way you can get to know 100,000 chickens in, in what, six weeks, eight weeks that it takes to grow chickens now? Yeah, I know if one of my sheep are starting to get sick, I know it immediately. Just a slight behavior change. You know, then I give them the um, something for the worms. Um, that's one of the things that um, I was concerned about in that paper was talking about how, uh, you know, the, the globalization and the, to make everything homogeneous and everything the same, we don't want a lot of uh, communication uh, 
among everyone, it's a little, the world right now is a little bit too interconnected. And there aren't enough regions that are separate into themselves. I mean, uh, America has gotten so homogeneous. Like if you go into any major city, Dallas, Atlanta, uh, Chicago, it looks kind of the same. It's those same box stores and, and everything. And it's just, it's so disorienting because you say, where am I? You know, oh, there I'm in the Marriott. And, you know, it's the same Marriott that I was in last month. Uh, it's, you know, the regional character of um, is, is so important that you have your own culture in this little area where you are. You have your own music. You have your own stories. You have your own uh, uh, type of cuisine. Those things are so, so important. And um, so the like niche building. And um, right now, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of talk about how people separate themselves off and become extremists because they're not communicating with the mainstream. They're not watching the mainstream news and they're not like everybody else. But the, the best way to foster diversity of ideas and to innovate is to have all these little Communi communities that don't interact, but interact a little bit. You know, a few people go and travel and come back and you have some visitors, but it's just really important to maintain little niches, little neighborhoods, little regions. Um, globalization is really a bad idea for diversity, if you care about diversity. Well, I thought we were supposed to be this big melting pot of all different cultures and peoples and ideas. Yeah, you don't want to melt them together. You you know you want them to you want people to be able to retain their ethnicity and their culture if they want. That's why in New York it's so nice that we have uh, Chinatown and Little Italy. You know, with the you know the people stay. You know, they come from China and they move and they stay in one little neighborhood, and they can retain their culture. And sometimes people um, can live there in Chinatown for 40 years and never learn any English to get by. <laughs> Which, you, you know, that disturbs a lot of people, I guess. But, you know, it's kind of cool that, you know, you can, although Chinatown is pretty much disappearing now and Little Italy is pretty much gone because developers have come in and, and wiped that all out. And, you know, there's probably a H&M you know, instead H &M. of H&M is a big uh, clothing store chain. Oh, okay. that, yeah, there's probably that instead of the big uh, fish market that used to be there. Yeah. The fish market, they used to sell fresh fish that the yeah. fishermen caught and brought yeah. in that morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just another example of, well, that'd just be an example of local food going away, but probably not real. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So the, the, the question I have, I mean, we talked a little bit before the show about collapse. And that's something that uh, I've talked about before with my friend Hobbs and you know several other folks. Do I think that, do I agree with you that, that we are heading for a collapse? Yes. Do I think it'll be soon? Yes. I think it's already starting. Yeah. So, yeah. Other than other than like the basics that I've been yelling about for the last six months, which is grow a garden and build your community food system, um, how, how, 
how does your paper translate? So how can the, the biosemiotic scaffolding and principles prevent centralization and consolidation of wealth and monopoly power as we're trying to rebuild down the line, assuming that, you know, that I'm one of the ones that we're some of the ones that make it through and get to the rebuilding part. Well, as, as I said, you know, the, the hardest part to uh, redesigning a system is taking out the old one because, you know, the infrastructure is all there for, to support the old system. But since, since the owners of the old system are taking it apart themselves because they have a great reset agenda that they want to completely change, we have this opportunity to once, once the system collapse to come up with better ideas. In the paper, I, I write about a different um, alternative monetary systems um, uh, that, you know, I mean, I, I'm a philosopher, so all I can do is provide, a, you know, a philosophical grounding for your idea between this, I, the, the conflict between this mechanistic idea of the world and that we can, if we just understood things better, we can control them, which is scientism really. And this understanding that there is something else in the, in the nature of living systems and living beings, we don't have to call it spiritual. I'm a scientist, so I'm not gonna call it spiritual, but it's, it's, I call it semiotic, which is these immaterial relationships between living beings in the reciprocity of the, you know, the, the, the good luck that a chicken like Sydney had, those things are unpredictable. Um, and as I say in my paper, if you had a robot going around, you know, um, measuring the grapes, you know, and, and eating them, it would pick up a, a beetle and, and realize it's not a grape and then you know, yeah. if you built an, if you built a perfect AI chicken, right, it could perfectly imitate a chicken. And even one day bumped up against that trellis, like Sydney did and knocked the beetles down, it would still eat grapes. Cause it was programmed to, cause it was grapes. on the program to look for grapes yeah. that day. And Sydney has the ability to misinterpret an object that a beetle for a grape and then go, Oh, this is food too. So that, that is where, um, you know, where, you know, to some extent we're all somewhat robotic, you know, we're automatons, we have these habits, we just go through the motions and some, we don't have to think to do things, but there are these moments where it's, you know, like the, the pathway splits and it, it depends upon an interpretation of of the material thing that's in front of your eyes. And a robot is gonna have a strict category. It's, it's either a one or a zero. And so it's, it can't diversify, but a living being can, can choose a new pathway and discover an entirely new way of surviving in the world. And that's how evolution happens. You know, a, a robot isn't gonna evolve on its own. Not yet anyway. My other, my paper um, analyzing that is called Smarter Bots. Um, I forget the title of that one because it's also long, but the, the idea, we analyze um, slime mold as the, the most primitive type of intelligent life um, known that scientists like to use in their labs. 
and it can do really smart things. It can find its way around a maze. And, you know, a lot of people study slime mold and, and it can, it can interpret things. Um, normally it's set, its default motion is to head toward warmth because that's where the food is. But you can do this sort of trick to it like Pavlov's dog, you know, the equivalent of ringing a bell and you can train it to associate cold with food. Um, and even at slime mold, we're talking slime mold. And so that, that's, that shows you how um, organisms use signs because warmth is a sign of food and you can change that sign and make cold a sign of food for the, for the slime mold. And that, that's one of the things that proves that um, even primitive organisms use signs. Um, I bet neurologists hate you right now because a slime mold doesn't have a brain and you just prove that you can teach it something. Right. That's why I use the slime mold is because it doesn't have, it, um, it, it doesn't have a brain stem. It doesn't have any nerves. It just has a bunch of nucleotides. Um, it just has a, a multiple nucleus in, in, um, and so what it amounts to is anything, any life form that is a collection of individual cells uh, can behave intelligently. Um, slime mold is a bunch of single cell organisms that fuse together. And so it has thousands of nuclei in it. It's a very strange, <laughs> but, but you, can, you can, you know, make uh, analogies to the way a brain works too. I mean, a brain is also just a bunch of neurons. There isn't a, you know, there's no brain in each neuron, but collectively they don't have minds. A neuron doesn't have a mind, but collectively these mindless things add up to something smart. Collectively, and, it's just, it's a mass of cells powered by fat that, you know, yeah. all have kind of a very similar nucleus. Yeah. And, and uh, this, each neuron is complex enough to make interpretations of the signals that it's getting. Um, you know, it's not always on or off, um, like a one or a zero. Um, uh, you know, every biological cell has a little bit of wiggle room and can uh, mistake one thing for another. Like, for instance, we have a, <clears throat> you know, we, we learned with this virus that the virus um, can attach to one of your receptors and that receptor has evolved to attach to something else entirely. So when the cell docks with a virus, it's made a mistake. It's made a misinterpretation that's, that's lethal for it. Um, so, and, and there's no way to predict what type of new protein on a virus might interact with a protein in one of our cells. It's very difficult to predict. Um, <clears throat> depends on the context and things. So, so, so if we can get away from this, you know, overly simplistic mechanistic view of the world and have um, an idea that, that things in nature are not wholly predictable and can't be controlled, um, maybe that would give um, people some humility and not think that oh, I can just reorder the entire agricultural system in the United States. And, <clears throat> you know, we're going to tell all the ranchers are going to have to do everything this way. And everybody's going to have to grow their carrots this way. Um, and just decentralize and let people make their own choices. 
Some of them will fail. Some of them will do well. The problem with decentralization is even though the people that are in control of the current system are taking it apart or the current system is collapsing, you know, whichever side of that, that particular fence you're on, I think everybody can agree the house of cards is coming down. Yeah. Um, the question is, is what's going to be rebuilt in its place? And if we're going, if we have to go away from centralization, like if that's the direction we need to go, how do we do that through this coming crash? Well, Russia has a very good model, decentralized model of agriculture. Um, a long time ago, they made sure that everybody had access to a little plot of land and a little house called a dacha. Or if they don't have a dacha, they have a little, an allotment where they can farm. And I think something like 80 80, 90% of their potatoes are grown by individuals who have garden plots. Something like 70% of their fruits, um, berries in particular. So they've, they've diversified their agriculture and it's much um, more stable because you know everybody's growing their own. Um, so if you know one, you get a problem on one farm, it doesn't spread, you know, uh, if one flock of chickens gets sick, you know, you don't wipe out a thousand birds. <clears throat> so we, so there is a model already. And, and I think in order to do that in the United States, the first thing that I would say is follow Henry George's uh, notion that, um, but kind of a modified version of his notion, but every citizen in the United States deserves to own a subsistence plot of land tax-free. Interesting concept. It's, it's not a new concept. It's really like in Russia, they have that, you know, for instance. Um, it's, you know, the idea of the commons. There's, it's kind of an old idea. Um, but but what, you know, the first, the first role of a government really is do no harm. And if a government is taxing the homeowner for that little piece of ground that they have with a roof over their head, that's um, you know putting that family at risk. Um, the government doesn't want to do anything to make it more difficult for a family to survive. And if you if you've worked hard and you bought that land and you bought that house. Um, you shouldn't have to, uh, you know, the, you shouldn't, there shouldn't be any risk that you would lose it because you didn't pay taxes. So we need, a, we need another way to fund the infrastructure rather than property taxes. And um, I mentioned in my paper that um, uh, American Monetary Institute is uh, an, Institute that's been around for a while talking about monetary theory, Ellen Brown with the Public Banking Institute. I told Ellen that I would shout out to her today. <laughs> um, so a government can, this is, a government can create fiat cash out of nothing, right? We know that because we just saw trillions created. But if you created that money um, and it, you know, the Federal Reserve creates it and gives it to banks, <laughs> and let's banks make money off of it, or they give it to uh, Wall Street or big corporations. Um, 
But if, but if a government, if the US Treasury, get rid of the Federal Reserve, if the US Treasury created dollars, greenbacks, because that's what greenbacks used to be, just for the purpose of, of building the physical infrastructure, the roads, the schools, the hospitals, the, the uh, train lines, communication lines, internet lines, uh, then, uh, then the government could turn around and charge people very reasonable fees, maybe sliding scale fees to use that infrastructure. And, and that way you wouldn't have to tax it. I mean, right now the government borrows money and play, pays interest for, for things that it does. I mean, it's, it's just insane because a government can literally and does print money. But in 1914, the bankers decided, oh, no, you know, if we got control of the monetary creation, we would be able to create money out of thin air and then loan it to people at interest. Let's do that. So could, could you imagine if you could just create cows on paper and then make money out of not having to do anything material to, to you know, ha not having to create the thing that you're selling? I've heard stories of guys that have gone to jail for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy, oh, I can't mention a name, but uh, through, through a, another, it was, it was kind of a secondhand deal. Like, we get, we got a call. It was like, Hey, I know we had a, I know I was going to bring you this many cows from, you know, this guy, but I got another opportunity. Uh -huh. We got this thing coming up there. There's this registered Angus herd. We got to have a place to stash them. Can you watch them for us? We'll even, we'll even tack on another 10 cents ahead of day. And dad was like, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Well, turn out that these 250 registered Angus cows allegedly existed more than once. And um, while the cattle were on the ranch, his whole scheme fell apart and the FBI went and raided his offices. The banker just showed up at the ranch one day demanding to look at the cows. And I said, excuse me, you are who? And he explained who he was that, you know, he was the banker that funded these cows. And I'm like, well, okay, if you want to go look at him, we can go, but you have to talk to me. And, you know, if you want to come back, we need to talk. Anyway, like the short end of the story was he didn't like, I don't think he went to jail for it, but there was, you know, phantom cattle on paper that, you know, he bought, sold, and traded stuff that he didn't own more than once. Um, it, it's much harder to make fiat cows than fiat money though <laughs> so yeah. this guy got caught because it's hard to do <laughs> at some point you're gonna have to come up with the cow he got caught and he got his wrist slapped and just a few years ago i saw his name in the news for a very similar scheme and he was in trouble again and i thought you know You'd think they would have learned when they caught him the last time, they would have just put him in jail or, you know, barred him from ever owning livestock again or ever being a livestock dealer. But guess not. Yeah, it's funny, huh? We don't, you know, our court systems don't really work that well. We have, um, we always try to regulate, you know, come up with regulators to, uh, you know, uh, slap the wrists and impose the fines and things like that. But, 
um, they don't do such a good job because they can get paid off. You know, that's a problem. Whenever you concentrate power in the hands of just a few regulators, then they, then you can, it's, it's easy to look, to know where to buy the person that has the power. Or that's willing to look the other way for a year or two in exchange for a really sweet job. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the courts are the better place to handle these things. Um, but the courts, the courts are all clogged with, um, you know, drug cases and things like that. So. And then you got to, then you have to have the evidence. You got to figure out, you know, how are we going to make this case and pay and the it lawyer. Money. It needs money. Yeah. We need a legal system that doesn't depend on um, winning, doesn't depend on having more money. We need a, a political system where winning office doesn't depend on having the most money. I think we could maybe elect our representatives through lottery at, as long as there were term limits i'm 100 percent behind that oh guess what ancient greece actually um elected their representatives by lottery there wasn't i mean it was only the patricians that were in the running but well oh i think you know everybody 30 and up or 35 and up being a run for the lottery to go go spend four years in Congress and serve your government and serve yeah. your people. You'd be great. I'd hate it. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, it'd be like jury duty. It would be awful, but we'd do it. We Everybody would... would hate it. Nobody would want to be there. Nothing would ever get done and no, no new rules would ever get made. Well, good. No rules. We don't need it. You know, they, they pass 650 laws a, a year in you know, acts a year, bills a year in Congress. Do we need that many? I mean, if you think about what acts would you keep if you could get rid of, you know, what one of my friends said, well, I would I would keep the Freedom of Information Act. And I said, well, that just describes to you all the hoops that you have to jump through in order to get the information that you should have had from the beginning. So I was like, what other acts, you know, and if you think about it, it's really hard to think of any acts. I mean, I don't think we need the the income tax if we if we used fiat money to build the infrastructure and then charge people to use it we we wouldn't need that um you keep we keep talking about fixing the money and yeah fiat, that's the root of all evil fiat money is a problem and yeah, yeah, I, i've had several i've had several folks on before to talk about bitcoin and I only bring that up because Bitcoin has lost something. It's it's crashed. Like I never got it. I never. All my libertarian friends were were advocating for Bitcoin. I don't think you should have fiat money. I think you should money backed by infrastructure. So you have infrastructure money. That's, that's a little Define bit different. That. Well, so so if you have if you need to back your dollar with gold, okay. Let's say we're a government. We're setting ourselves up as a new government. And we need gold to back our currency. What do we do? Well, we got to steal it from somebody or tax the citizens to get it, right? Or, or we get it, or we just, you know, get an army and we go take it. Getting an army, yeah, yeah. So that's that's not very nice. Instead, if we if if we had if our citizens were on board with this and and believed in the faith and credit of the government, we could print a greenback and give it to people to build infrastructure. And then, you know, like internet, you know, or, or, or buy the existing internet cable, 
and then um, charge people reasonable fees to use it, $25 a month instead of 100. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, there's no reason why you couldn't do it that way. You know, print the money first and then, and then in effect collect the taxes from it later as people are using it. And that wouldn't be as, as painful to people. You hate writing that, that check for, for taxes if you pay taxes, um, but you don't mind so much paying the cable bill or the... Because um, A, those are mostly, those are generally voluntary. B, it's a service that you want mm -hmm. and that you have decided that they are providing you a good service at a fair price and it's a good value for your dollar. Mm -hmm. And that's why you choose to do business with them. Right. I, um, you know, there's some states I could mention that I won't, that I would probably choose not to drive in anymore because they don't spend money on their roads. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. But the, roads are always the thing that comes back on, on us libertarians. Like who yeah, will build the roads? Who will build the roads? Yeah. Well, who built uh -huh. the roads on my ranch? Uh-huh. You know, I built the roads on my ranch. I take care of them so I could get around. And uh -huh. because I built the roads, I don't want anybody else to use them and tear them up because that's just more work for me. So when when people say, well, who will build the roads? I understand who will build the roads, but there's maybe some other who would build the roads to say interconnect the communities? Would that be a function of government? Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, in my little hamlet, the the hamlet builds the local roads, and the county builds the county roads, the state builds the state roads. You know, I mean, I think roads are. I don't know why it's such a contentious issue, really. I mean, can we talk about wars instead? Can we talk about, you know, it? If I look at my I look at my uh, little Hamlet um, um, roads department, and I can see that they're not doing such a good job sometimes. And they're just there's this one road that's in this beautiful part of the um, valley, and they're always up there just kind of sitting around enjoying the the view, and and we're paying for that. But you know, I can I can deal with a little bit of corruption. <laughs> the roads are okay. <laughs> You know, I, I, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, um, bigger fish to fry than worry about the roads too much. I mean, <laughs> they are a mess. I, I, I just drove to, um, Ohio in the spring after, um, after the winter season, they're just terrible. You know, they ruin your car, but you know, if that were all we, we had to worry about with the government, I'd be okay because I we go to town hall and you could argue with them. I want better roads. I want cheaper roads. I want you know more efficient roads or whatever. But we have so many. You know, I would like a government that just was like building and maintenance department. Yeah. You know, not controlling my you know any ideology or any kind of behaviors or or controlling anything. what they teach school children. School children, absolutely not. What, you know? what what kids are supposed to eat. So, yeah, so I would absolutely love it if my government just built the roads, uh, just just built the school buildings. Maybe we don't even need them anymore. I, I you know, homeschooling is kind of a better uh, way to to educate kids because my my son Why do you say that. 
Well, for, it worked out for me. I don't know if it will work out because um, uh, I didn't, ha I could work at home. So um, I, while I was working, my son was working on his stuff, but I'm out in society. I'm at the library um, while I'm waiting for my son to have music lessons. I'm at the cafe chatting with friends. We go to museums together. We go to, you know, the cultural sites and the historical sites everywhere. And of course, the the people at the museums and the historical um, sites are always so glad to see these homeschoolers because they're the only ones who ever come. Probably the only ones that ever ask questions. Well, they're the only yeah, ones. They only they're definitely <laughs> the only ones that ask questions, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, because they're, you know, homeschool kid is sort of like a free range student. <laughs> And, and just like Sydney, they just bump into the wall and they learn stuff, you know. Bump into the wall, learn that, that thing that fell down yeah. might, might be something tasty to eat. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, I guess what I was trying to tease out of you is, what, what do you feel like public schools are really for? for make, it, I, I, I'd be happy to answer that and give my answer and go first if you want me to. Well, you know how when, you, when you're homeschool your kids um, and people find out about it, the first thing they ask is, oh my God, how will your kids get socialization? And I, and I wonder where they, where they got that word. Like that's the only, the only time that's asked to criticize homeschooling parents. Probably and so the during the, unions. yeah, during the lockdown, when all these parents were forced to homeschool their kids, I had the opportunity to say, oh my God, how will you ever institutionalize your children? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> because it is it is a form of institutionalization, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and it's it's crazy to think that um, all 1000 kids in this school and in in that novel I mentioned Locus Aminus, I also do a satire of of public education. Um, and, you know, the idea that they all need to learn these 1,000 facts about history. They all need to learn, you know, these 600 facts about biology. Well, what if you want to learn, my son wanted to learn not the history of all the wars and stuff, but the history of musical instruments. Why not? You That's know? probably more important. To him, he's a musician. So, uh, it, you know, we don't all have to know the same things. It's okay if I know some things that you don't know and you know some things that I don't know because then together we can, we know a lot more. <laughs> yeah. And I can ask you something and you can ask me something, but if we've all had the same education, then, you know, <laughs> and anyway, these days with, as far as memorizing facts, we could just look them up, you know, what, what we need to learn is critical thinking, critical and creative thinking. And I think that I don't feel like critical thinking skills are well taught in public schools, nor have they been for at least two decades. Yes, I let me let me spring this on you. See if you'll go for it. I think an important part of critical thinking is reading poetry and literary fiction, the kind of fiction and, and creative writing where a line can mean three or four different things. You know, it sort of has this literal meaning and then it also metaphorically 
and then in the context of something. So if you if you read that kind of writing all the time, every time every sentence just it's just full of meaning and you don't take it literally and you go, it could mean this and it could mean that. And you get to be a real critical thinker. So then now when you listen to a politician speaking, you go, yeah, you know, he's saying that literally, but that also behind that, he's all that, that there's this implied meaning. There's a little bit of irony here, you know, in a context that's changed, that means something completely different. And so learning the really sophisticated language in literature is um, extremely important for developing critical thinking. And these days in school, I mean, they'll, they'll assign a, you know, a Dickens novel and then ask the kid, uh, you know, what did the character Macabre heard the, you know, the clerk's office? And the kid will go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember, you know, they asked the kid to remember facts. I don't, I don't remember what happened in half of the Dickens novels, but I, but I learned that creative, that critical reading skill where I could interpret everything. I'm going back to the importance of interpreting things in reality so that you have flexibility in what you can do. So, um, you know, but people say, well, I don't know why I have to read this poem. That's not going to help me get a better job. You know, that's not going to help me make more money in the world. And I think people have misunderstood what the function of, of language is. After all, human beings are unique in our ability to use language. And language at its, you know, the, the, the epitome of language is that there's not a liter, just a literal meaning, that it, there's all sorts of other metaphorical meanings attached to things. And that's what makes us not robots. That's what makes us creative and flexible and able to imagine things in new ways. So I think that's one of the things that's missing um, from American education. And I know that's a hard sell because people really do, you know, these kids are sitting in front of a T.S. Eliot poem and, and, <laughs> and they, don't, they can't figure out how it's gonna be useful. So, but that's how. <laughs> You make a strong point, and I never really drew the connection between, you know, poetry and, and critical thinking skills. I'm not sure how I got mine <laughs> or, where, or, or who taught them to me or where they came from, but I'm glad I have them. And I think that it's not, it's not really taught in public schools. Um, I say my daughter, it's, it's, she's not biologically mine, but she lived with me for 10 years, so might as well. Um, anyway, Tanya homeschooled her for four years, all while she would have been going to middle school. And mm -hmm. I think that was probably one of the most important times. And, or I guess the, the last two years of, of grade school and middle school, but I think that's important because, you know, it, you said socialization, like that, that's the argument. Like, well, how are your kids going to get socialized? Well, they're going to get socialized because they're hanging out with their parents all day and their parents are interacting with other adults all day. And they're closely supervised in those interactions with other adults. You think in that classroom with 50 kids and one teacher that all those interactions that your child is learning from other children, you think that that's being supervised and moderated by that responsible adult to the degree that you would want your child monitored? No, that's that's not society. That classroom, um, 
a homeschooled kid is in society. That's how they get socialization. And my, my son would, we'd spend a lot of time in cafes across the street from the library and the music center. So, and, and we, you know, he, he would sit there and talk to a local lawyer about um, um, books that he was interested in, science fiction books and recommend. So my son got to interact with people of all ages. And in homeschool, there's little kids and there's older kids and you, you know, are all together. And so it's a much more natural type of society, um, introduction to society. That's why homeschool kids tend to be better adjusted and more independent. And yeah, I don't wanna make um, generalizations, but the statistics do bear that out actually, so. Yeah, it's homeschooling is not, a, is not an experiment that's failing. It's something that's been done and has been successful for thousands of years or at least several hundred. Yeah. It's centralized institutional schooling that's that's the failed experiment. Yeah, and it's only a couple of hundred years old. And if you and if you think about the reason why it began, you know, uh, people looked at um, kids who were going to work at 10 years old, you know, they'd work on the farm or in their their parents shop doing some sort of, you know, apprentice type thing. And they said, isn't it a shame that these kids are laboring and they don't know how to read or write and they don't know mathematics or basic science. Well, they should go to school and learn those things because you never know, like, uh, hmm, who's the, um, his name is escaping me, most famous uh, inventor in England who came from the lower classes. Uh, I wish I could think of his name. Um, you, you don't know where the next genius in science is going to come from. Right. You know, so you really want everybody, every little kid to have that opportunity because there, you know, there might be somebody you, you never know that could be really good in math and, you know, or, or you know, great at writing literature or whatever. So you want to give everybody that opportunity to go into those sort of academic areas if they want to. And then everybody should have, you know, a, a sort of a material job that they that they do too. I wouldn't want to just be a philosopher. I'm, you know, I know I have to grow food too, you know, to a useful skill and, you know, an academic one. But so, so now many years later, we look at our institution and we think, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, why are these kids studying poetry and science and algebra? They don't ever need that. They need to go to school to learn how to um, be, you know, work at a job or balance a checkbook and, or cook food or, you know, homemakers or, you know, work on cars or something like that. And, it, you know, that, that's not what school, you know, their parents should be doing that. They should be working after school. They should have jobs when they're young. My, my son worked in an auto shop from age, I think, 11. <laughs> 11? Yeah, it's not exactly. Is it another? I'm, I'm not judging. Not, not. Yeah, not, another home judging. School another homeschooling parent um, invited him to come in. So he just see how an auto repair shop worked, And he, he listed items on eBay, um, auto parts on eBay. That was his job. He came and worked on, you know, and it's just, you know, you, you need everything in your life. Um, but homeschooling provides all those things because, you know, I have my kid out working in the farm too, and, and, and also learning algebra. The latest thing that I think I heard uh, out of our local public school system is they were trying to, is that they're going to have 
like take these individualized uh, education plans that they'd started for, I think the seniors and the juniors, and they're going to go all the way down to freshmen in the high school. Like, Oh, so now we're back to treating them. Now we're back to trying to educate them as individuals and educate, you know, them all to their own strengths and their own needs versus putting everybody in a box and making us all take a standardized test. It's, it's, it's kind of like they're trying to go back around full circle again. I hope that's where they're going. I know there's a lot, there's a push in this new thing called impact investing, where you get these tech companies inventing this software um, for education. So, and it's tailored to meet the student's need, but it really is just a very limited, um, uh, you know, the correct answer. Okay, you get the correct answer. You just like playing a video game and then you get rewarded. Um, and it's not real learning if it's, if it's, that kind of gamification of your educational experience. I, I know Texas is a real uh, testing ground for that kind of that direction. Um, there's a woman called Allison McDowell who is um, writing about this in, on her blog called The Wrench in the Gears. And she's warning everybody about um, stakeholder capitalism, impact investing, where um, the new way to make money for investors is to design, for instance, educational programs or welfare programs, prison programs to retrain people and train people so that they uh, perform the correct tasks. And it nudges people to be the kind of human that you're supposed to be. Um, you know, with this tightly controlled, um, you know, um, online education. And, you know, if you hear your school uh, district talking about that sort of thing, run as fast as you can <laughs> away from that. Because they're, they're literally, you know, they, they have this idea, again, it's the mechanization that we can train kids like monkeys um, with rewarding them in this like video game like thing. Oh, you get little tokens and then you get motivated to do more. And, you know, that's, that's a real danger. Yeah, for sure. So I'm trying to come up with a philosophy, you know, you have these, you know, different economic philosophies of, uh, you know, uh, Darwinism, for instance, you know, the fittest survive or whatever. And that, that, that type of thinking ends up having a lot of um, um, effects, you know, throughout the whole economic system and business and schools and things like that. Uh, so I, and when I try to introduce this idea of uh, um, an interactive society, uh, not necessarily cooperative, like communists, everybody sharing together, but just if you leave people to their own devices and you expect them to be somewhat self-sufficient and you don't interfere too much, you just provide those necessary constraints like roads, <laughs> then people will flourish. They, they won't need so much education and guidance and controls and laws. They just need a little bit of wiggle room and they need the opportunity to plant their own garden and to find their own books to read. 
um, you know, government is just meddling too much. Um, we don't need that kind of centralized control. Any meddling is too much sometimes. Mm -hmm. So decentralizing way of the future. The, I've got to get out of here. So where can we find you on the internet and how can people get in touch with you? My website is vnalexander.com. Okay. And that um, describes my, uh, the work I do as a philosopher and also my novels. As I mentioned, I've written about being a shepherdess in upstate New York. <laughs> or actually my character is, is male character, so. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and the other one you mentioned, uh, Locus Animus? Locus Aminus. Aminus? Yeah, that's the novel, yeah. I'm working on a new novel now. I can't say the word because um, I hear, but it starts with a C, 1984, the musical. It's a, it's a comedy, <laughs> a, dark, a dark comedy about the, the collapse of, of, <laughs> of our system right now. Will you send me a copy of that, please? I'd love, it sounds like something I'd love to Actually, read. I'm, this is the first time um, that I'm, because this situation is ongoing and we're, we're going through these troubling times, we need to come up with a, the solution, right? We all need to be ready with, you know, when the system does collapse, we need to go, hey, don't do that. Let's do this. It'll be better for us. Right. And so I'm trying to write the ending. Um, the, the ending of George Orwell's 1984 was really, really depressing. It's supposed to be awful. I want to rewrite the ending. It doesn't have to end that way. The, the, the paroles, the, the, the plebs, the ordinary people, us, us, we actually can take our power back in a, in a completely, you know, um, nonviolent way. Just roll up our sleeves, plant our gardens, get organized. That's what we need to do. Right. At this point, saving seed, homeschooling, and gardening are like three of the biggest acts of civil disobedience that, yeah. that you can do. Because... I've done them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a couple. I got all three of those check marks too. Yeah, and a few others we want to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, I might be on a couple watch lists, probably have been for years, and no big deal. Okay, so vnalexander.com, uh, new book coming out. Hopefully I can, uh, we'll stay in touch. I'd like to get a copy of that and uh, talk about it. It sounds like okay. a great book. Great. Yeah, I have I have some of it on my, as I'm writing it, I let people, I let people read it, which I never, I never would do because I rewrite my books and perfect them and make them more poetic as I go on, but I've got the draft out there now because I want to, I'm actually getting, letting people write it with me because we have to make up this happy ending together. 1984 as a dark comedy, but with a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll see if I can think up anything. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'd like to hear your feedback. <laughs> it, anywhere else other than uh, your website that you'd like, you want to send some traffic or is that just the yeah, one stop shop? Public Banking Institute. Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, to, to fund a community uh, where you have a local butcher and a, a local baker, 
We need community banking instead of these Wall Street banks that have been charged with the, the task of making sure that the community is healthy and then loan money within a community. Versus the task of returning as much to the shareholders as possible. Yeah, no shareholders in this. No shareholders. Yeah. Well, very cool. Okay. <laughs> Anything else you want to uh, you want to end with? No, just great talking to you and, and meeting a, a, a possible relative. You know, maybe your family's from from Air or Aberdeen in Scotland. <laughs> I'd like to find out one of these days, but uh, like like we talked about before the show, I'm not sure that uh, that history is able to be uncovered anymore. It may be lost. Oh well. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll come up with something. There's some reason why I went back to sheep, having key sheep. It's in my blood. <laughs> Well, this ranch was fenced for sheep, but uh, that was under Skinner ownership, not under Alexander ownership, which I suppose is another story for another podcast. So, <laughs> Okay, great talking to you. You too. Gang, y'all have a great week.